Some is trying to fight against prophecy, and some is taking prophecy fulfill on them. Hey, materialists. Thanks for tuning in again to the podcast. This is been a while since I've published the last episode, but I'm real glad that everybody's tuning in. And I'm not coming at you this time from Gainesville Massive, Gville in Florida. I am coming at you all this time from the middle of a cemetery in Nantucket, Massachusetts. I'm part of Preservation Institute of Nantucket at the University of Florida, and I'm up here for a spell. And right now, as I'm sitting here, I am in the middle of the only African-American uh, cemetery on Nantucket Island. About an acre squared, beautiful little cemetery. I think the latest death date here is in the 1700s, late 1700s, so it's pretty old cemetery. Um, a lot of early uh, African Americans that were either enslaved here or were freemen here or escaped slaves that made it up here are buried in this cemetery. Um, there's a lot of uh, unmarked graves, you can see the indentions, but there's a lot of real interesting characters like Arthur Cooper, who escaped from slavery in the South, made his way to Nantucket and lived, became a part of the community up here. Uh, slave catchers came to find him and the community came together, the community of Quakers and white and black, everybody came together and protected him from the slave catchers, him and his wife, and they made it out. Then we have other characters like Miss Eunice Ross, whose grave is right here, died age 72 years. February 23rd, 1895. Eunice Ross wanted a chance to extend her education from basic education because up here in Nantucket, emancipation was in 1779, I believe, and Eunice Ross wanted to further her education. She was allowed a basic education, but she went and applied for continuing her education to get into the high school. Um, she passed the test with several other people, um, but when they found that Eunice was an African-American, they denied her access. So she petitioned the state of Massachusetts to desegregate her school, and she won. And she desegregated um, the, her high school. She was accepted. She was allowed to go, and then she told them to stuff it and didn't end up going. <laughs> um, so she's here, and she's awesome, and there's a bunch of other graves here. It's a lovely cemetery right behind the hospital actually, right next to one of these land banks, um, which are public lands and it's just a beautiful little prairie there right next to us. It's a lovely day, three-quarter moon, birds are chirping, it's getting chilly actually. Uh, thanks for tuning in, we'll get, get with y'all here in a minute. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast, the Materialist Podcast. This is Nigel Rudolph. I'm the Public Archaeology Coordinator with the Florida Public Archaeology Network Central Region. Coming at y'all, not, like I mentioned before, not from Gainesville, but from the lovely island of Nantucket, Massachusetts, ladies and gentlemen. Big ups, though, to everybody in all the FPAN regions way far south. Uh, I'm up here, and it's a lovely 75 degrees in Nantucket. The sun kicks butt up here, but the weather, aside from that, is awesome. Uh, I haven't been here in the winter, so I'm sure shit's different then. If you're just joining us for the first time, FPAN, the Florida Public Archaeology Network, is a nonprofit public outreach and education network focused on Florida archaeology. You know, the various branches of anthropology, the Materialist Podcast, we talk about how material culture, those bits and pieces of everyday life, impact us and how we use these things and how they use us. Because, you know, objects have agency and so on and so on and so forth. So let's jump into the episode. We are going to be chatting with a couple of folks today on the podcast. But first, I'm looking at a book right now, a lovely table book 
written by a friend and former podcast guest, Dr. Quincheku Ngozi. We spoke with Dr. Ngozi about her then work in progress, The Illumination in the Darkness Project. Uh, the book is actually a visual narrative merging fine art, monochrome photography, and painting. African-American cemeteries, Alachua County, Florida. It's a really beautiful book with many photographs taken, many different historic African-American cemeteries around Alachua County. The first part of the book, though, features her photos with these layered figures painted into the image. These painted additions create a narrative and provide a visual pop of color that allows the viewer to see the totality of the piece in a very different light. They, it's absolutely stunning. The images are absolutely stunning. So let's jump into my interview with Dr. Quincheku Ngozi. When I first started this project, it was only six cemeteries. Then the next thing I heard, it was 10 cemeteries. And as I started digging into dusty old places, I found out there is 40 some cemeteries. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know. uh, And then um, I read something um, in Tampa Bay just this year in March where that um, a Senator uh, Cruz, I believe, yep. says something about there's 3,000 African-American cemeteries that is in Florida that has not yet been totally identified and that might be erased by history. I'm like, okay. So I'm thinking to myself, hmm, what is the long life project? <laughs> you know, it's, it's not something that you jump in and you jump out, you right. know, it's almost like writing a dissertation. Yeah, know? no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one so, thing leads to another. Right. So me traveling to different places, the, between the excitement and the fear and the, and the discoveries and listening to the different um, stories, because I've gotten a lot of story by different people when I start asking questions. So, I, I mean, I got to keep going. Yeah, right. Got to keep going, would, you know. Would you call it like a passion project? Well, I, I really want to think that the product itself, the project, the product, however you want to see it, is it might to me. I never really saw it as an art. I kind of mm. saw it as a story, mm. you know, telling a story um, through using the form of art or creativity, you know, my painting and the and the photographs and whatnot, but. It goes back when you really stop and look at it, you know, I, I have, you know, um, no matter where you, what culture you in, you have what you call oral history. Right. So it's always like more stories are told. So I feel like more stories is there to be told and it becomes more like a history holder. You know, it, it kind of holds the history, like a museum. Yeah. A museum holds your the history. Uh, so the so going out and looking at these and discovering and everything, it's like holding on to history. So it, it's going to motivate you to mm. to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 that's just my feel. So let's talk about the photographs with the paintings. First of all, I. It's it's absolutely beautiful, and I know historically a lot of a, a lot of uh, f- photographers also painted on their their photographs historically to bring color to. Before there was color film, they would paint on their their photographs to bring color into them. But what I love about this is that your the characters are in color, the the photos are in black and white. So not only does it make the characters pop out, like really present themselves, but it makes them distinctly sort of a separate from from the image that they're really conveying a story in and of themselves but because you're placing in them in that environment like it's just it's just a fabulous way of interconnecting two stories let's go back to you said the first uh podcast uh remembering um i always saw my images as like what you call neo science mm. or what a neo science lens um or surrealism Mm-hmm. So to be a little bit more clear, maybe we can say neo-surrealism. Uh, basically, because neo means like new. Mm-hmm. So basically, I'm constantly uh, creating a new reality 
mystery, you mm. know, that's where the mystery comes in at. I'm bringing about uh, some type of modification to a unnoticeable place that we can pass by every day and we don't notice that it's there. Mm-hmm. And I think me doing that, I'm bringing a, a, a courtship, a loving courtship together. Oh, I love that. You know, uh, I'm I'm creating a, like a, a new a new birth. Uh, I'm giving birth to something new, you know. And because um, I go out there and I research, I I discover, I analyze. I'm doing. I think I'm. I feel like I'm doing the same thing that old master surrealists have done, mm. <laughs> like uh, Michelangelo. Mm-hmm. You know. He painted Jesus and his family and never met them, right. you know, in certain, <laughs> in certain situations, you know, and never met them. I don't know these people in these communities, but I feel like me putting these figures into, into a black and white is showing that this is a community and these people have something in common and they have a certain loving courtship to their community. Yeah. Did that make do you understand what I'm saying? Totally, totally, totally. Okay. Yeah, I, and I think it's really beautiful too because the figures being in color and then the the environment being in black and white, it's it's sort of highlighting. And maybe this is just my way of looking at things that like like life is not in black and white, right? There's all different shades of gray. There's all different colors in the rainbow and that sounds super cliche but this picture for example with the gentleman on playing the guitar on the yeah uh, yeah who is he that i'm like really drawn to that i mean does is he an individual or is he just from your mind he's from wherever that period is okay mm. <laughs> when you really walk around and you see um the different dates different people you kind of, you try to, you, you try to imagine, well, well, what they was doing in the t- 1920s. Right. What were they doing in the 1930s? Um, with, are there musicians here? Are there dancers here? Is this auntie so-and-so or grandma so-and-so? You know, but you, you try to, I try to put people in certain communities because of the, the the dates, the environment, which the cemetery is located, mm-hmm. um, stories that I've heard about that cemetery, you know, like different people would tell me, oh, my aunt so-and-so is over there and she used to cook and she mm-hmm. used to do, okay. So I kind of like, oh, I wonder what, you know, what should we doing now, you know, like that, you know, so, and then I try to put, um, them in color because I want them to stand out. Right. Yeah. Not they blend do. into the background because you know a lot of us like to like you guys. Some people say, "Well, I'm always alone, even in a crowded room," because <laughs> because you try to blend in, mm-hmm. and I don't want them to blend in. I want them to be recognized and noticed. Yeah, they've been forgotten for long enough. Yeah, for sure. Right, and that gives the viewer the opportunity to create their own narrative their own story so when you see the guy who knows he might be playing your favorite song right yeah 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 they're absolutely beautiful and the one at pinesville where you have the three women sitting to the left of the image and then the gentleman's blowing it looks like um yeah yeah the the conch horn yeah because you're you're really contrasting like generations and cultures people in Africa were blowing conch horns the same way that people in Florida were doing um, uh, indigenous people here. And so that's really beautiful because you can look at that particular figure on two different well, you levels. you know, that really started from Africa. In Africa, they do that in the right. ancient time. It's the whole thing. It's a, a West African story that talks about the conch shell. Uh, when you go back and look at some of the, what they call patikis or West African stories, mm-hmm. um, you can find a lot of these stories that um, started there in ancient time. Yeah. You know, uh, they used them for call, you know, calling uh, 
information, you know, calling to the next uh, community or the next village. Um, they do that. They do that in the West Indies as well, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to bring about awareness, to, to alarm, all kind of different types that they use for instrument, even even to playing um, as an instrument, as a tool. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. And they yeah, use I'm it sure. for fighting, too. They use it for fighting. They put their hands inside it. Yeah, I I imagine that would work. (laughs) So just to kind of go from the pictures, the preface that you put in the book and listeners, I will post links to the book and to her website where you can purchase this. It's absolutely beautiful table book by Dr. Quincheku Ngozi, Illumination and Darkness Project. You talk about in the preface, but you talked about how you were a little uncertain when you'd go to some of these these cemeteries out in the middle of nowhere. T- tell me about that uncertainty, that uncomfortableness that you're you're going to connect to these people who you have a connection to already, but then feeling like the atmosphere of of being concerned about your safety. I mean, that's that's got to be a little unsettling. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> put it lightly. <laughs> well, like you said, you're white and I'm black. You know. Uh, and I'm out in nowhere land. And trust me, a lot of white men pass and they look at you and glare at you as my son stay with glaring eyes. Uh, and they don't question, they, you know, they kind of like give you that discomfort, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But I already had like um, I don't know, I, I I'm going anyway. Um yeah who are you? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, I guess that's my mindset. I'm like, who are you? You know? Yeah. And, but I also had some, I had some uneasy feeling when going to these cemeteries period. Yeah. Because I'm like, mm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm going here. I don't know what to expect. You know, um, I don't know the area. That was a lot too, because sometimes people will be watching me and I go down the street, turn around, come back, go down the street. <laughs> because um, I didn't know the area. So I'm constantly driving up and down the street, making, you know, U-turns mm-hmm. and going side the road. And so I guess I just looked at strange, you know, as a black woman with two kids in a truck <laughs> and an unfamiliar place. So... And then going to the cemetery itself, um, I, I had a little uh, uneasiness because I don't know what to expect when I get right. there. Um, yeah. I'm I'm expecting to feel uh, kind of bad, kind of sad, some kind of conflict. But when I got there and I actually found this the cemetery, I go, oh, I found it. I get just so excited. Oh, God, I found it. I found it. You know, and I get excited. This is it. Blah, blah, blah. And we're out there and you get it's like a calmness, you know, there's a calmness, there's a joy and the, the, the atmosphere, you know, make you feel like uh, the spirits are like, welcome, about time, you know, mm-hmm. about time you got here. We, we heard about you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we heard you were taking pictures. Hey, you got my best time. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, and there was, there's times that, um, I got a very expensive camera and there was some cemeteries, like certain areas. I go to take a picture. My camera wouldn't work. Oh, wow. And then I turn to the other side. It works. And then mm-hmm. I go, oh, let me go back. And I take a go back to that. I said, OK, so y'all don't want me to take your picture over there. I got you. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. I'm going to take your picture, you know. And, you know, and I would leave and. It's like it, it felt like it felt good, and and also it made me feel um, I did a good job. Um, I felt like I was protected, you know. Yeah, I yeah. felt protected, and I says, "Well, I, I did all my prayers. I don't know about y'all out here with y'all funny flags." Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But, well, that's uh, what it takes. It's like they don't even have to say anything. They can just use imagery and it conveys like exactly what they're thinking. And it's all it takes, you know, and it's. Oh, God. Oh, God. And, terrible. you know, me being bold too, like some of them, I was like, hey, hi, do you know any African American cemeteries over here? You know, the black. <laughs> 
<laughs> and they will roll their eyes and just walk away. I'm like, okay, you have a nice day. I guess that means no. <laughs> yeah, no, what is? I'm answering you. <laughs> right. It's uh, what is it? The St. Joseph Cemetery. You have to drive down that long dirt road for just ever. The first time I went there, I was like, where am I going? And you'd pass people on that little narrow road, and they're like, where are you going? And of course, I drive the state vehicle, which looks like a police car, which makes me feel terrible anyway. Oh God. <laughs> So, and, and same with Patterson Cemetery. I haven't been over there in about a year, but that also is, is so isolated out there. You know, you, you start to question, mm -hmm. well, maybe well, I'm going in the wrong direction here. Well, don't, but like Joseph and a few of the cemeteries, like I was lucky to meet people that had people buried there. Oh, excellent. So, and I will ask, could you take me? Could you show me? You know, like, yeah, what day you want to go? So a lot of time I had to switch my schedule around to meet their schedule, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, because, hey, you got somebody that's going to actually take you there. They, you know, you walk around, they tell you a little bit of history of it, their family and stuff like that. So I'm like, I really enjoy it. That's probably really enjoy you know, because sometimes um, I didn't go by myself, you know, uh, somebody actually taking me there. So now I... I those long trips down the dirt roads did make me kind of when I'm by myself, like, oh, my God, because yeah. I got to tell you, when it was one that we was going to, the dirt roads very, very long. And, and my daughter says um, she waited and she says, well, mommy, um, do you got gas? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. She says, how's your tires? Good. <laughs> She said, because I'm down to one bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the potential for horror movie uh, scenario is pretty you know strong. She said. <laughs> I said, you need to stop watching. And you know, the thing <laughs> is, I'm already got this fear and, and I'm excited at the same time. And I'm, and I'm busy looking. And then I have this kid on the side of me that, that all of a sudden wants to question. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like that voice. <laughs> yeah. Mommy, um, I'm only down to one bar. And this looked like a hard picture that I saw. What if we break down? So now my mind is like, oh my God. Uh, I'm thinking in my head, now how am I gonna call triple A to come pick us up? Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. I just absolutely love it. Um, such a good book. I thank you so much thank for you. it. So you saw a bunch of different headstones while you were out there. Is there any that you can recall that sort of connected with you? in ways obviously this podcast is really kind of rooted in archaeology and material culture studies but that i like to view it as the headstones objects around us everything is connected to us as human beings and we're trying to express ourselves through these things families we're trying to express themselves through the headstones that they left for their loved ones were there any that popped out to you that is significant or that you haven't seen the shape before or the iconography before or anything like that the ones that stood out to me the most is the one at saint joseph where their people are hand was handwriting them you know, they was like, you, you know, like, wow, did you stand there with a nail? Did you stand there with a knife? How did you hand? Because it was like it was handwritten, mm -hmm. not hand carved. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, it made me wonder, you know, because I, that was the first time I ever really seen that mm -hmm. where somebody tried to carve, uh, do their own scribing, I guess you want to say, on mm -hmm. the stone. Mm -hmm. Um. There were some, um, there were some that was really like out there, really weird. But I'm an artist, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm an artist, you know. I'm like Erica Badu. I'm an artist. I'm sensitive. Oh <laughs> no doubt, I love her. <laughs> but so I love it all. I love it yeah. all. Yeah, I love it all. Have you, and I don't want to be like morbid or anything, but have you thought about if you were going to have a headstone, what would it what would it look like? Where would where would you place it within the environment? Oh, um, I've thought about it. Uh, some of the places I've been, I would not want to be buried there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I really don't know my headstone. I guess I will leave it up to the people 
that actually take care of me. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, trust their judgment. Because um, if I had really had to make a decision, I probably they probably have to have a million dollars to to make my headstone. Um, but other than that, I don't know. I, I mean, there's I really don't know. Well, it's really, really fascinating. Know. We teach this workshop called Crypt Cemetery Resource Protection Training. We're actually going to be doing one in Archer uh, in September um, mm -hmm. at the Archer Community Center. How we sort of do like an icebreaker at the beginning of the workshop is we hand out a marker and pieces of paper. We have everybody draw their final resting place. Just, you know, their idea that they have and then sort of stand up and describe to the, the group why they made the decisions that they made. And, and a lot of people go there to learn how to protect and restore old cemeteries and headstones and everything. They're planning on being cremated and having their ashes tossed. So it's really fascinating that people that have a completely separate idea for how they want themselves to be eternalized versus what they want to do for the community say you know they want to go out and protect these these sacred places but when it comes to them they just want to be you know scattered in the gulf of mexico or something like that <laughs> well i i think being cremated is um a coward way out i mean I don't, I don't want to be mean to anybody, mm. but I think it's just, it's just a coward way out, you know, mm. because you leave, you leave nothing behind to, for anybody to actually go and pay homage to you or go and pay honor or, uh, or even just go and say, Hey, hi, how are you doing? Right. You know, um, you leave nothing, you, you leave nothing for anybody. Yeah, no, I, I totally see that. Yeah. So, I, mean, I mean, like I said, I might be wrong, but yeah. Well, I mean, I, I always wanted to have my body donated to science, whatever that means. But it wasn't until I started studying cemeteries and spending loads of time in cemeteries at, you know, different hours of the day in the middle of the night and the first thing in the morning and that I was, I realized that I very much want to have a place for my loved ones to come and sit, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and remember me, whether they're sitting there having a beer and chatting with me or, you know, yeah. riding their yeah. bikes by and saying, hey, hey there's right. Nigel, you know. Right. Yeah. So that that completely changed, like just being connected to these these physical places like I had never right. been before. Well, I think it is also when you have a place a person can come, it also gives them that continuous communication. Right. You know, but if you've got your ashes, how, how can I can really, you know, in West Africa, they do believe in having community, you know, continuous communication uh, with you when they set up ancestor shrines and whatnot, mm -hmm. you're still having a conversation with who and, and everybody. But like you said, I, you, you still want to be able to go there because it's also a form of healing. Right. Yes. Because if I can go to a place where you are, I can be there to heal. I might need that healing. You know, I might need to like come here and complain. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I have somewhere to go. Yeah. And they're That's good listeners. <laughs> right. right. Nobody gets up and leaves. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> looks at their cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. See, they have patience, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's the same thing me going out and taking pictures. Um, when I went out there, you know, you don't have nobody complaining. There's nobody whining. There, you know, everything is at peace, comfort. There's, there's, you got this mm, holistic type feeling um, that you, you yourself is like elevating. You know, you, I feel like it's elevating. And my kids, I mean, they're young, you know, I, well, one is young and one is a little bit, is an adult, but they both kind of agree, you know, uh, on certain things when we go out there to the cemetery, they, they do the oohs and the ahs, and you'd be surprised if you say, what you say an ooh to? You know, <laughs> look at mommy, look at this, you know, uh, mommy, what is this? And, and my son, like, he'll say, I'm respecting the dead, mommy, but you know, this, this somebody needs to come clean this up, you know. Like, <laughs> then I have to get the whole thing about littering and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So, but it, but it's I think 
you know, going there is a way to a, a form of healing as well. Because some of us need that. Some some of us cannot just, oh, I just throw your ashes out and I'm okay. Moving right along. <laughs> no. I mean, I in, in my experience, there's really no more comforting places than when I go to cemeteries. Honestly, I, you know, I, there's just something about the quietness of the place, the, the stillness. You can hear, you can hear the mm -hmm. animals. You can yes. connect with the place on a, yeah. on a much deeper level. When I'm having a bad day, I ride down to the cemetery by my house and just lay down on a bench and just be, just be there. Yeah, yeah you, you go and just be there. You know, it. I, you can hear, like you said, you can, you know, you can hear the, the animals. You can hear, I say, I can hear the sun. Mm. I can hear the sun. And people are like, you can hear the sun? Yeah. If you shut up long enough, you probably can hear it yourself, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I agree. But but it's, 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 I don't know how to explain it. And I don't want to sound like, you know, what you call it? esoteric mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's um it's a form of some type of elevation it's a total different level of looking at life and death to me it it, sh it actually shows you that life and de death is the, the the line is so thin between life and death that we should have more respect yeah. for the living as well as the dead, but we don't. As human beings, we don't. Um, we have no respect for the living, and we have no respect for the dead. There you go. Well, <laughs> and, and you know, and that really ties in to what you were saying about you know the issues with segregation and issues with systemic racism, following people into the grave, and it's and it's it yeah. literally breaks my heart. The the, the cemeteries that I've been in that that are multiracial or whatever you want to call it that have a generally the white section in the front the black section in the back, in the back. Yeah, yeah of course and but then like I've seen it in places in a couple places in Ocala where um, you know these are municipal owned cemeteries but you can see where the lawnmower stops it doesn't go into the African-American <laughs> section it just stops right. they'll make the white section right. look fine and so it's this right. And whether or not the man mowing the lawn had some kind of malintentions, there's no way to say unless you ask him. And I'm not right. gonna. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but still, it's it's that level of disrespect. It, it, it's almost like shallow and unrecognizable unless you are really like looking for it. And then you see it, and it's bright as day everywhere. And right, right. It's really well. Frustrating. It's just like right. It's just like my kids. You know, I said, you know, y'all really haven't live long enough <laughs> um, and been many places as I have. And I says, when you go in certain communities at the, the surrounding neighborhood, if you read the room well, you can, you can, you can see why yeah. sometimes, why this cemetery looks the way it looks. Yeah, no doubt, you know? 100%. You know, because how many times, you know, you can go places and maybe other people will want to go there and fix it and clean it and do, but the surrounding community got such a hate, you know, for who you are. They, people say, well, I'm not going to risk my life to go over there to do this. You know, right. I'm not going to risk my life to go and do that, you know? So. Yeah, no, I hear you. It's scary and it's sad and it's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just, it just bums bums me the hell out but i'll <clears throat> i'll edit that part out but yeah <laughs> it just it, but honestly it really does it just seems like it's all for naught and so much hate man so much damn hate like right and you and you and you know if we go back to albert einstein albert einstein no offense he said uh racism discrimination uh, racism is uh a white man disease Untaken. <laughs> and and you and you ask yourself why so 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 when it comes down to cemeteries and you're looking at the cemeteries and you're looking at the people in these communities you you, you have to say what happened you know i i i question what happened yeah. why why is it why is it like this why why well, why is a group of people 
feel like they need to control another group of people, even in death. Right. Even in death. Right. You know what I mean? You want to control, even in death. I don't get it. You know, um, why you feel like you need to have some type of, I don't know what the word is, um, fear, hmm. scared, superior, you know, um, I don't know. I, 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 I've been trying to cipher that yeah. as I go to these cemeteries because I can't, I can't figure it out. You sent me a question I want to ask me about public exhibits. Oh, yes. Exhibit. Yes. And I want to say, I think I'm already doing doing that by having a YouTube, by having a website, mm. by having the book. I think I'm already doing that public, you know, exhibition, you know, exhibiting. I'm exhibiting already. Uh, and, and the artwork is affordable. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It's affordable. And all all that that I'm doing helps generate money to help me continue this project. Yeah. So the project is not over. No. Oh, that's good. I was about to ask what's next for the next step in well, the illumination. Well, 3,000 3, unidentified abandoned African-American <laughs> cemetery. I think in the next eight years, I can do eight volumes, oh eight, eight, more, eight more tabletop <laughs> books. Um, and also there's a website that you can, that I've been loading stuff up on that I created. I had the iTech person to create, um, is www.illuminationanddarkness.com. Um, okay. And you'll, you'll go there and you'll see a list of so far, all the cemeteries that I have done where some of the pictures are, are there on the website is, is not in the book. Oh, that's great. And it's okay if I link to that in the show notes of the podcast? Yes. Awesome. Yes. Well, Queen, I can't thank you enough. This has been absolutely a wonderful little conversation. And the book is amazing. Uh, listeners out there, Dr. Quincheku and Ngozi, Illumination. And if you go like, Ngozi. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Visual narrative merging fine art, monochrome, photography, and painting, African-American cemeteries, Alachua County, Florida. There are like 40... 39 47 so far i yeah. counted yeah i got 47 yeah <laughs> so i've been able to go to 34 of them but i've only been able to take 24 um pictures you know been able to re really get in and take pictures of the cemetery because like some of them uh one guy says well we all want to go to heaven but if you cross this line you want to get there a little bit quicker oh. so <laughs> <laughs> i took him at his word point made so. yes <laughs> point made. i don't have to take this picture you know uh, <laughs> i would have been chased by dogs you know whole nine nine so, so I've been to 34 of them, but I've only been able to get pictures of um, 24 and in the book is 22. So, but the website do have 24 of them and the rest of them that I'm going to try to put on the website as well cool. as I go along. Well, thank you again for being on the Materialist Podcast. That was really wonderful to chat with you. And let's talk soon. I would love to go out to a cemetery with you sometime, anytime. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anytime. Um, tell me what about those things up in jo in Joseph Cemetery when you get a chance. Oh yeah, no doubt, listeners. There's St. Joseph Cemetery, right? Sort of. I think it's on the west side of the cemetery. There's a tree line and mm -hmm. all the graves. It's actually a pretty well maintained cemetery until you get to the tree line, and then there's a whole bunch of graves inside the trees. So I'm gonna be investigating that and trying to find out what the scoop is. With it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks, everybody. But before we cut out for this episode, Rachel Kangas came on the podcast to chat about her new position as the director of the FPAN West Central and Central Regions. So let's make welcome my new boss, Rachel Kangas. All right. Well, welcome to the Materialist Podcast. We are here in Gainesville recording session with somebody quite famous. She's been around FPAN for how many years? 
seven years. Now she has moved up to the director position, and I'll let her introduce herself. And her name is Rachel Kankis. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> Hi, Nigel. How I- are you? I'm good. How are you? Welcome <laughs> to good. the Materialist Podcast. I'm a big fan. I'm very excited to be a <laughs> longtime listener, first time caller. Right. Very right. excited. Yeah, this is the first time uh, we've had Rachel on, and hopefully it'll be one of many times. She was the <laughs> public archaeology coordinator for the Southwest region down in Fort Myers. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now she moved up to Tampa. And then she was that position in Tampa. And now she is moved um, up. And, you know, I guess the big thing is, Rachel, with great power comes great responsibility. So my question to you is, with all this power, how do you feel you must also be aware of your responsibilities? I think that is an excellent question, Nigel. (laughs) And so I think this is, I mean, the power and the privilege that I have is something that I've tried to think about a lot in like in my career at FPAN. You know, a lot of times when we go give talks, we are the we are the expert in the room. And, you know, when we give career talks, we are the archaeologist who is talking about either archaeology as a career or, you know, how we got specifically to where we are. Um, so I've tried to be conscious of the power that I have in that position right. and then also the privilege that I have as a straight passing white woman and, you know, kind of the power that that gives me just walking into a room full of people, you know, the power that that gives me. So these are the things that I've tried to to be really conscious of and I'm sure I can always be doing a better job, but, you know, I've tried to kind of have these things in mind in my in my job and in my life already. So kind of having this new, this I guess, added power as the director, I think that just crystallizes that more and makes the good that I can do bigger. And it also makes the harm I can cause, you know, bigger. <laughs> so it's a, I, I do think it's a huge responsibility. Like this is something that I've been trying to really be thoughtful of for, yeah. for many years. Yeah. So that's one thing that I've really tried to keep conscious of is start looking at our teaching and what we do going out and teaching about archaeology in Florida and, and seeing it as our obligation to provide those that we teach, the general public, with the, the, the real history, the true history of the state, like like it or hate it or love it or whatever. It's not it's not beautiful. It's not pretty. It's it's not even remotely pretty, <laughs> actually, but it's it is our obligation. And so I think I have as a public archaeology coordinator and, you know, as you as the director now, it's a little bit easier for me in my position to see my role as this kind of truth teller as best as I can of the history of Florida and the archaeology of Florida. But you sort of have to be a little bit safer in how you interact with the public because you are the director. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you have to kind of hold back on some of the things that you say or be a little bit more politically savvy? I don't know that I feel like the job requires that. I mean, I think it would be it is smart to do that and yeah. to, you know, kind of like I'm not just working for myself now, right? Like I'm working to make sure that you are supported and that the mm-hmm. new coordinator is supported and that we all that we all have jobs and food on the table. So I think like that part and again that goes back to the responsibility, like making sure that all of that that we're not going to get, you know, I'm not going to say or do something off the wall and you know <laughs> have that you know reflect on on all of us so I, I guess in that sense there's a little more responsibility but I'll be honest just me as a person I am I'm a pretty I think measured person most of the time in my especially in my you know public life I don't think it's it's too much of a of a change at least for me like mentally it's just there are more interactions that I have now as director that again could you know influence yeah. my job your job you know and and our our regions i want to be thoughtful about how i approach those things yeah we developed together a basically a vision statement that we have shared on the website and it's, and it's and it's sort of our path moving forward could you talk a little bit about what the history of that vision statement was? What prompted um, us coming up with this new vision statement um, and, and why you think it's so valuable as a uh, to state that up front that this is this is where our focus is going to be? Yeah, definitely. So I'm 
very excited about our vision statement and I think we did a really good job on it. Um, and one of the reasons that I thought it would be a good idea to for you and I to kind of develop this together is with so many staffing changes in in the, the regions, I think there's a lot of kind of shift and you know, the last three years that the whole world has had, you yes. know, there's a there have been a lot of like monumental shifts. So, you know, with Jeff Motes, our amazing former director leaving after fourteen years. Yeah, uh, RIP in, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> he's not Oh he's not, not dead. dead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, after him leaving, like that's a big change and like Jeff and I are very different people. Yeah. Um, so I know that, you know, the outreach and the direction will probably change at least a little bit. And then with whoever else comes on in the region, you know, so like Jeff, Becky, Cassie, kind of the core people that were in West Central kind of doing their thing for the last couple of years, you know, they I think they made a really strong, a really strong region. And then Jeff, as the director of both regions, I think, you know, I think he had a pretty big impact on on the super region, right? On the on both of those regions, central and west central. So with Jeff leaving and then, you know, Becky and Cassie both also in different positions. So West Central is getting an entirely new staff. Both regions are getting a new director. Thought it would be a really good time to kind of talk with you and with you and I. I mean, we've worked together Mm-hmm. for years mm-hmm. and it's always been fantastic so working even more closely i also really kind of wanted to get your take on what you wanted the future of these regions to look like so i thought a vision statement would be a, a good kind of project for us to talk about that and where we want to go um, and really to have a s- statement that we can put on the website we can every time we think about you know we want to develop a new project or you know somebody's asked for this talk that we haven't given for years and years do we want to continue to give this talk you know we we have this vision statement that we can always come back to and say all right this isn't serving our vision so we're gonna you know we'll suggest that we do a different talk or a different program or you know this is a talk that we enjoy giving but it could it could do a lot more to serve that vision so i think it was a really nice way to like again to talk to talk with you and to kind of figure out where where we want to be in you know five five years ten years yeah just do you have it in front of you i do will you read it sure our vision is a complete and representative history of florida that equitably represents the influence of all people that has been imprinted on the landscape both physical and cultural boom yeah that's really good I know, we did a great job. Yeah, we did a good job. Mm -hmm. And we put a lot of thought into it. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that during COVID was also uh, across the country, there was this kind of social outcry, social justice outcry, uh, certainly following the the murder of George Floyd um, in Minneapolis. And I think that certainly prompted me to start being a little bit more aware of my role as an educator and how I feel... I want to begin communicating these these histories because they are complicated and they've been largely been underrepresented in college level education all the way down the line. And so that's prompted me certainly what happened a couple of summers ago to to start being far more aware of of our teaching methods, of who we're teaching to, of who we are neglecting. And I think one of the biggest issues with academic archaeology in Florida and elsewhere, we tend to preach to the choir. We, and, and that's a big problem because the history is largely about people that don't look like us. What do you think about this, the, the history of Florida that tends to be really myopic and, and how people teach the history of Florida um, tends to be that way as well? How, how do you feel like academic archaeology will view a vision statement like we produced. I would hope that they would embrace it. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, I think as archaeologists, we are uniquely positioned to understand and interpret, especially us as public archaeologists, to interpret the history of Florida, right? Like the whole the whole thing about archaeology is that you can find the physical evidence of 
people in the past who were not included in written documents, right? Especially when you talk about historical archaeology, that's one of the biggest reasons that you're doing archaeology is because you don't, you're not just looking at the historical documents. So I think it's incumbent on us with those, with that skill set to use that to tell those stories. And I think if we're only using our skills to learn more about you know, the people who are in those documents, like typically the rich, older, white mm-hmm. men, like if we're only using our skills to learn more about those people, I think we're doing a real disservice to our discipline and to the public and to, you know, the funders of archaeology. And like, I think it's really important that we, that we, that we do that. We have, again, we have a unique skill set that lets us look at that and interpret that and help to tell those stories. So right to your right up on the wall is a, <laughs> is a poster that I helped create. I don't know what you would even call it. It's it's the annual archaeology poster. It's basically the hashtag no more stolen ancestors and then with a statement from the Tribal Historic Preservation Office. That made some waves. And um, <laughs> I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I didn't provide you with this question, but I just thought of it right now. But so what, what are your thoughts about just the, the, the hashtag and, you know, our sort of embracing the, the campaign? Uh, so I'm really proud of the poster that you helped design based on the Seminole um, button logo and that we were able to put the quote that we did on the poster i'm i'm really really proud that we had that we had a role in yeah. in creating the physically the poster uh the no more stolen ancestors campaign has been around for years and it's basically the the campaign is working to uphold a law that has been on the books for what 30 years yeah yeah so 1990. Yeah, so it's working to uphold a law that is incredibly flawed in and of itself. So I'm really proud as, you know, part of FPAN to be a part of this poster. I think you did a wonderful job oh, with you. the design on the poster. <laughs> um, and again, we're, you know, using the the seminal design. And I'm really glad that, you know, so far that's been, a, this has been a really great partnership, I think. With the work that we're doing with the hashtag and with sort of this reinvigorated work with uh, underserved communities, our new vision statement and thinking more broadly about Florida archaeology in general, do you think it's headed in the right direction? I think that archaeology as a discipline is made up of the individual practitioners of archaeology, right? So it's like, I think that a person is like the sum of their actions, right? So I think that the discipline is the sum of the actions of archaeologists. So a lot of archaeologists that I work with, which is, you know, also kind of self-selecting because this is the work that we, you know, are very specifically trying to do. Um, so the archaeologists that I'm reading and, you know, trying to learn from, I think are are moving in a direction that I agree with. And that's, yeah. you know, I think more towards community archaeology and really centering communities, questions and needs and not just going in and doing archaeology because we can. Right. Um, so I think so I see a lot of that happening and I see a lot of support for that and support for those ideas and trying to kind of change some of the ideas that you know we i assume we were both i I know i was you know kind of brought up with which is you know archaeology as just a completely extractive science archaeology as a as a science that kind of commodifies humanity Mm. but in doing that i think especially with repatriation issues like we kind of commodify humanity right like that's that's a whole like if you have a brick with a thumbprint on it yeah that is way more interesting i don't want to say value like i don't want to put a monetary value because that is unethical to all of archaeology um but like that's much more interesting than just a brick with Mm -hmm. no thumbprint on it right Mm -hmm. so i guess in in that and in that understanding we know that humanity is important and that is kind of what 
we're trying to do, right? We're trying to identify the humanity and tell these human stories of people in the past based on the physical objects right. that we find. The material culture, if exactly, you will. Exactly, exactly. So we, so we're like proving that humanity is important, right? And like that is, that is kind of our goal is to get to humanity. But when we talk about re repatriation, we had to remove the humanity of the descendant communities in order to get like to be digging up those burials right. and those burial objects right so it's like we are removing the humanity of living people in order to kind of try and talk about the humanity of the dead yeah. through like through their physical you know human remains and burial mm. objects so i think that's something that we really need to think about and kind of come to terms with as a as a discipline. So I see I see a lot of people that I think are kind of moving in in the direction that I I think is the the right direction and there are de there's definitely pushback against those things as well because that has been the way that we have done archaeology for a long time. It's just very exploitative and extractive. So I think it's really hard for some people to to see why that's wrong, you yeah. know, if your whole life has been based on these ideas. Your whole career. Yeah, and and you know, your career is also teaching the next generation these ideas right. i think it becomes really embedded so understanding why you know why those might be problematic i can understand why that would be difficult i guess the pushback that i have seen seems to be from you know the institutions that are kind of really grounded in that more colonial archaeology yeah so i think grounded is putting putting it far too lightly i think they're bogged down mm. they're bogged down in this colonial mindset of how archaeology was done and it, it it sort of is the encasement that has created these programs and these whole institutions is this this colonial idea this colonial perspective the colonizers perspective of archaeology and i can totally understand how complicated that is to unravel i can totally understand how difficult it is to to break down those walls when they're so thick and they're so strong that they have built in a science. <laughs> they have completely yeah. created the science. But, you know, it, it's time and we have this uh, moral relativist idea of what the past was like. And when you have researchers and archaeologists like doc Dr. Justin Donovan, who's doing such amazing work with incorporating communities that have been literally left out of the equation for so long it's really awesome to have somebody like that to look up to and sort of kind of direct our work in in that regard what do you have to say about justin we got to see him speak oh my gosh at the florida anthropological society conference just a couple of months ago yeah it was a total career fan goal yeah. moment that's great <laughs> um so i think and this kind of goes back to the vision statement too I think that the work that Dr. Donovant is doing is incredible. And, you know, him and Dr. Ayanna Fluellen and Dr. Alexander Jones yeah. and everyone in the that I know of who's in the Society of Black Archaeologists, like the work they're doing is incredible. And the SBA is a fairly new organization, yeah. um, which doesn't mean that these ideas haven't been around, but the, the organization itself is only a few years old, I think. So it... I feel very fortunate that we are like that I'm in my career at this point and yeah. we have such incredible um thoughtful amazing archaeologists who who are also so accessible mm -hmm. when I was in Southwest during COVID when we couldn't do any in-person outreach i did a weekly facebook live video every thursday at 3 p.m i went live <laughs> for a couple minutes and talked about something with archaeology and somehow dr donovan agreed to come on and basically <laughs> like talk a little bit about a hulu special an episode of your attention please which is a show on hulu and they did a like a segment about him and you know, him as a black underwater archaeologist uh, and also terrestrial archaeologist and kind of talking about basically how cool he is, which totally, <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> yeah, so, he's a cool guy. Yeah, so, so I asked him if he would come on fully expecting him to be like, no, you know, I'm very busy. I'm sorry, I can't. And then I would just hopefully get his, you know, blessing to show the clip and just kind of talk about 
talk about it a little bit, but he came on. So we showed the clip and then he answered some questions from me and from people who were watching the live video that were kind of giving questions. And one of the questions um, that was asked was, uh, what's one of the biggest barriers that he sees to the the diversification of archaeology as a field? And one of the things he said was high school students, like we're not doing enough outreach to high school students, you know, because you, everybody loves archeology span as a kid, right? right. You're not gonna meet a kid who's like, no, that's that's lame. I don't wanna go dig in the dirt. <laughs> For math. Although you might, and kids that aren't into that, that's totally fine. But he's like, everybody loves archeology span as a kid, but then you don't really hear about it again until you're already in college and you either somehow have found it and have decided to go into it, or, and I know a ton of people like this, you're in school for another, I was actually a student like this, you're in school for another major, and then you take an archeology span class, and you're like, oh, this is the coolest thing ever, right, I can do right. this. So he made the point of doing outreach to high schoolers and you know, letting them know that this is a viable for career path, that there are skills that they can learn in archeology, span and, you know, continue in archaeology. There are skills they can learn and take into other fields. So when he said that, I really was like, all right, high schoolers, let's talk about high schoolers. Yeah. And if you can imagine like the access to conversations about archaeology in general in K through 12, not to mention different socioeconomic areas that are already being neglected educationally in so many different ways. Can't tell you how many times I've been to Title I schools and and folks are like, I've never even heard of archaeology. I don't know what this is. I didn't know Native Americans lived in Florida. I didn't know there was indigenous people uh, living in Florida. And so it's just such a great opportunity that he has taken and also that I, I'm encouraged that we're going in that direction as well to, to help kind of spread the word about this science and see how relevant it is to everyone um, and not just a very cloistered group of peeps. Agreed. Totally agree. So it was nice to have that kind of conversation with him. And then I've attended a bunch of Zoom talks that he has yeah. given and, and other people from um, Society of Black Archaeologists and just, you know, Zoom talks all over the world, because that was, I think, a, a silver lining of COVID was being able to access all of these minds and these talks and these ideas from literally from my couch and from, you know, from my house, from my small apartment. <laughs> <laughs> we'll link to the SBA, the Society of Black Archaeologists in the show notes and everything. But um, just really to wrap it up, Rachel, this welcome, big fat welcome. Let's give Rachel a welcome. <laughs> welcome to the director position. We're glad that you're you're in this position. You're going to do great. Very excited to continue my working relationship with you. And I hope you can be on the podcast again in the future. I'll happily be on the podcast Aww. again. And thank you, Nigel, for just being incredible and all the amazing work that you do. I feel like my job as director in Central is really to just make sure you have what you need to continue (laughs) doing the fantastic work that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening. I appreciate everybody tuning back in for the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Apologize for this episode being kind of disjointed. Being up here in Nantucket is demands a a heck of a lot of time. And so I'm having to piece together this, uh, this, podcast episode, you know, bit by bit, but I got, I'm getting it out and it's going to be done here in a second. But I would like to first and foremost, always thank the listeners for tuning into the podcast and you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Spotify, as well as we are on the social medias, Instagram and Facebook. Please like us and share. It means a ton. We would love more social media interaction and we'll give you a shout out. So on that note, Shout out to everybody who commented on the Pagers of Peta episode. Again, it means a ton to get a response from the audience. So folks know that I know that folks are listening and I appreciate it. So you can reach me by email at thematerialistpodcast at gmail.com. That's materialistspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to USF and the USF Department of Anthropology. Of course, fat shout outs to the fpan regions Uh, if you'd like more info on fpan please go to fpan.us as always intro music big props to silver in the age of opulence uh, used by permission by have gun will travel Uh, if you'd like more information about have gun will travel they have a facebook page of course at hgwt music and you can find them on the web at hgwtmusic.com 
thanks to Dr. Quincheco Ngozi for being on the episode. It, it means a ton. She's been a huge help, really a big inspiration for the, a lot of the cemetery work I'm doing. Huge thanks to Rachel Kangas. She's been on the job for a, a couple of months now, and she's doing fantastic. And I really appreciate her patience and her kindness uh, with the work that she does. So thanks, Rachel. Um, if you'd like us to cover anything special, just let me know. Shoot me an email or find me on social media. Um, I'll put a bunch of information in the show notes, links to Dr. Ngozi's uh, book and her work, um, links to FPAN and things like that. So check it out. And um, I don't think there's anything else. So we'll catch you all on the flippity flip. Bye. Brutality, yeah. Brutality is something locked from reality. War is not the answer, only love can conquer, yeah. War is not the answer, only love can congregate, yeah. The stages that we live within, in times like this, only love, yeah. It's only love and black harmony, yeah. It's only love and black understanding, yeah. Black love. Yeah, I love when you love.